Welcome back to The Law with D.K. Williams. That's me. And as always, The Law is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching new ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. So this week, we're on episode seven. We're going to talk about the landmark Supreme Court case of Plessy versus Ferguson. We'll talk about who Plessy was, who Ferguson was, what the case stood for, and uh, some about the Supreme Court justices, because I think their background is important, or at least worthy of note, so we can learn from the life of the dissenting judge and how his life probably played a role in the fact that he dissented on this case. So what did he dissent from? Well, in essence, Plessy versus Ferguson made official or sanctioned the doctrine of separate but equal. So after the Civil War, which ended in 1865, Plessy v. Ferguson was decided in 1896, so 31 years later. So we're talking about the aftermath of the Civil War of the 13th Amendment, which banned slavery involuntary servitude, the 14th Amendment, which prohibited the states from denying rights of black people under the Constitution, made it unconstitutional to deny them rights and privileges and immunities, and how that was going to be put into effect is still being discussed here in 1896 when the case was decided, this particular case was decided. And of course, they decided it wrongly because they said, sure, you can treat the races differently as long as they're treated equally. And in this particular case, we'll talk about it. I can think everybody usually thinks of that doctrine, separate but equal, when you think about public schools, which is what Brown versus Board of Education was about, where a lot of schools, and uh, in Kansas, that's where Brown versus Board of Education came from, they had uh, segregated schools. So you had a public school system for the black kids and a public school system for the white kids. And the school board, the local school board, and they did this all across the country, said, yeah, they're separate, but they're equal. So we're not denying anyone any of the rights uh, and immunities or privileges of being an American citizen. And that doctrine was officially sanctioned in 1896 in Plessy versus Ferguson. And until 1954, when the Supreme Court overturned it in Brown versus Board of Education, that was officially sanctioned by the government. Of course, there's lots of problems with that because even if it's conceptually possible to have separate but equal facilities and separate but equal programs, they weren't equal. They were separate and unequal. That's a major factor. So Plessy v. Ferguson was decided in 1896, 31 years after the Civil War had passed, 31 years after the 13th Amendment, roughly a little less less that after the 13th Amendment had abolished slavery and voluntary servitude in the country, and the 14th Amendment, which made it unconstitutional for the states to deprive former slaves, and in the future, black people in general, the rights and immunities, rights and privileges that all American citizens were entitled to. So to give you kind of a time frame on that, because sometimes these dates can get kind of abstract to me, if you were 20 years old at the end of the Civil War, You'd have been 51 when Plessy versus Ferguson was decided. And you know, as I like to do, we're going to talk about who Plessy was, who Ferguson was, and a little bit about the justices, particularly the one dissenting justice, because I think there's something to be learned from his background as a Southerner, born into a slave-owning family, and why he might have been, or the factors that might have led him to say separate but equal is unconstitutional, because you can't do that. You can't separate the races and still treat them equally. He said that was unconstitutional. Constitutional, and as it turned out, 58 years later, he was vindicated in Brown versus Board of Education, or at least his more egalitarian and equality-minded beliefs were adopted by the Supreme Court. And this was a seven-to-one decision. One justice did not take part. Henry Billings Brown wrote the opinion. Now, he was 
the U.S. Supreme Court Justice. He was born in Massachusetts, went to Yale and Harvard, and he was an elite guy, right? Even back then, those were still the elite schools. After law school, he moved to Michigan and practiced law. You can't be much more of a Yankee than that, right? But he wrote the decision, given the stamp of approval to this separate but equal doctrine, that yes, you can segregate the races. And the lone dissenter was a Southerner. U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Harlan was the lone dissenting vote in the case. He was an old white guy, right? I mean, they were all old white guys. And Justice Harlan was born in 1833, so he would have been in his late 20s and early 30s during the Civil War. The Civil War took place from 1861 to 65. He was born in Kentucky to a rich slaveholding family, so he, he was born into connections as well, right? And Kentucky was a slave state. Now, it did not secede. It was one of the border states that had slavery but did not secede from the Union and join the Confederacy. And as we all know, the Emancipation Proclamation, or I hope we all know this, the Emancipation Proclamation, as we are taught, freed all the slaves, which, of course, is incorrect and wrong. It purported to free the slaves in the state's in insurrection, the rebelling states, the slaves that were being held as property in the Confederate states, but it specifically did not free the slaves in Kentucky and Missouri and the other states that had slaves but had not seceded from the Union. So that's another thing that, another myth that we were taught in school, that the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves. And if it didn't really free anybody because it specifically did not free the slaves that were still in states that were in the Union. And the Confederacy wasn't exactly paying attention to Lincoln's proclamations at the time, right? It was a big political maneuver and it worked for him, right? In the end, it worked. Lincoln is credited with freeing the slaves with the Emancipation Proclamation, and it did no such thing. So Harlan, Kentucky native, went to Center College in Danville, Kentucky, and law school at Transylvania University, which is not where all the monsters come from. It's a school in Lexington, Kentucky. So he's a Kentucky guy, right, his whole life. Rich slave-owning family, yet he was the lone descent in Plessy as a Southerner. John Harlan had several older brothers, including a half-brother, half-black former slave. His half-brother, half-black, half-brother was Robert James Harlan, who was born in 1816 and whom his father raised in his own household, in John's household. The half-brother, half-black, half-brother, former slave, had been tutored by Richard and James Harlan, John Harlan's older brothers, or two of them. According to some historians, and one in particular, Allison Hobbs, Justice Harlan's decision to be a dissenting voice, the lone dissenting voice in Plessy v. Ferguson, was probably affected by the fact that he grew up with a half-brother who was half-black and a former slave. Robert, the former slave, half-brother to the future justice, according to that same historian, Allison Hobbs, became very successful. He made a fortune in the California gold rush, made a lot of money, and then he came back and settled in Cincinnati. Just kind of quick aside. So there you have it. The author of the majority opinion, which said separate but equal was fine, was a Yankee elite, went to Yale and Harvard. The lone dissenter was a Southerner who went to basically small Southern schools all within the state of Kentucky. Louisiana had passed a statute that was the subject of Plessy versus Ferguson, which required all of the train companies, the passenger train companies in the state of Louisiana to provide separate cars for white people and for black people. And if they only had one car, maybe they didn't have enough passengers, right? If they only had one car, they had, have, had to have it partitioned so the white people would be on one side and the black people would be on the other side. This was a state statute. So it was not capitalists that were responsible for the segregation. It was the state. And so many people don't understand that. They think capitalists were responsible for slavery or for Jim Crow laws. Slavery could not have existed without the protection of the state, making it illegal for slaves to run away, making it illegal to protect or help runaway slaves. Federal law, state laws protected the, the institution of slavery. Capitalism is all about voluntary transactions. The opposite of capitalism is slavery. That's statism. And you see later, as in this 
particular case where the state legislature ordered segregation on on these trains, not the capitalists creating segregation. The state mandated it. And as we'll get into in a little bit, there are criminal penalties, in this case for the train, for either a black guy who refused to sit in the black section of the train or for white railroad employees that refused to enforce the statute. So while when we think about the separate but equal doctrine, I think most people, certainly me, I think about school segregation, and that's what Brown versus Board of Education dealt with, which eventually overturned this doctrine because there were lots of school districts in the United States that had one school system for white kids and another school system for black kids. And they said, hey, this is okay. We can do this. This is legal because while they're separate schools, they're equal. Now, of course, one of the obvious problems with that as a practical matter, they were never equal. But even if they were, it's a violation of the 14th Amendment and the guarantee of equal protection under the laws. But not until Brown versus Board of Education, in this case in 1896, made that doctrine uh, an official concept that was protected by the United States Supreme Court and the Constitution as they interpreted it. So Louisiana had the state statute requiring separate passenger cars for blacks and for white people. If there was only one car, they had to have a partition in the middle of it or wherever. They had to have a partition in in the one car where black people would be on one side and white people would be on the other side. This case is a great snapshot of the racial prejudices that were institutionalized in the states and the federal government at this time, even some 30 years after the Civil War had ended. Plessy was Homer Adolph Plessy. And he was, according to the case, the case itself, quote, seven-eighths Caucasian and one-eighth African blood, and that the mixture of colored blood was not discernible in him, end quote. That's how they wrote about it. I'm quoting, so I shouldn't get in trouble, I hope, quoting the United States Supreme Court decision. And he and some other people, I don't know exactly all the people behind him, but they set about to have him disobey this law in order to bring it to a court system, in order to get a decision, hopefully from the U.S. Supreme Court, which they eventually got. It just didn't go in their favor. So he did this on purpose, kind of like a lot of people don't realize this, but Rosa Parks was also set up on purpose to challenge the segregation on the buses in Alabama. And to me, this is a great example, both of these cases, of how civil disobedience is so important to justice in this country and that an unjust law should be challenged, should be ignored, should be disobeyed. And that's what Plessy did in this case. Now, who was Ferguson? Ferguson was the Louisiana County Court judge who upheld the Louisiana statute and said, yeah, this is fine. We can do this. Nowadays, you probably wouldn't have the name of a trial court judge on an appellate decision. But back then, you had a bunch of writs of errors and a bunch of procedural writs, methods of deciding cases that were left over from the English common law. And nowadays, we've got the the rules of civil procedure, got a federal version, and every state's got its own version that are pretty much, they're similar, where you don't have to do that anymore. So you wouldn't have the name of a judge in the case. But in this particular case, back in 1896, Ferguson was the trial court judge that ruled against Plessy and said, yeah, the sta- statute is fine. Plessy and his legal team had to ask for an order against Ferguson to overturn his trial court decision. Again, that's not likely to happen again, but that's that's why the judge's name was on this case. So Ferguson was a criminal district court judge in the parish of Orleans or Orleans. And in looking this up, New Orleans and the parish of Orleans are coterminous. They're the same thing. Like in Denver, the city and county of Denver, at least now, New Orleans and the parish of Orleans are all the same thing. Now, I might have said county a minute ago, and I apologize for that because in Louisiana, they don't have counties. They have parishes. 
that's part of their French heritage. And I mentioned the English common law. Well, Louisiana, English common law doesn't matter to them, but they had the Napoleonic Code on which they based their law. Plus, he was engaged in an act of civil disobedience, trying to make a point and change an unjust and an immoral law, and we need more of that. Just like we need more of Rosa Parks, we need more Plessies. And even if we can't be a part of some major constitutionally relevant decisions, we can still disobey civilly in little ways every day, and they add up. So I encourage people to do that. You don't have to risk jail. You don't have to risk incarceration or fines. But if you can nullify an unjust, unconstitutional law, ignore it if you can. It's up to all of us as individuals. I encourage us to do that to the extent we're able to and to the extent we wish to. So back to Plessy. In June or June 7th of 1892, and I know dates can kind of become meaningless, but in 1892, that was four years before the Supreme Court decision. So you get an idea of how long it took from the actual act of Plessy buying the ticket on the railroad car, and before the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on it, it was about four years. So on June 7th, 1892, Plessy bought a ticket that was going to take him from New Orleans to Covington on the East Louisiana Railway. I looked it up on Google Maps. Covington is basically due north of New Orleans across Lake Pontchartrain. Today, it's 41 miles via the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway, which I didn't double check, but I'm pretty sure probably didn't exist in 1892. So it would have been a much longer route going around Lake Pontchartrain. And that's relevant, at least to some degree, because it was an entirely intrastate train trip. And the East Louisiana Railway only operated within the confines of the state of Louisiana. Now, it's kind of quaint in that it mattered back then in 1892. The judges and the Supreme Court justices and people in general took seriously the federal power to regulate interstate commerce and the notion that states were entirely able to to regulate intrastate commerce. And that distinction is made several times in the case. Again, it's quaint because it doesn't matter anymore, not after work at V. Filburn, but it did matter back then. And I think it's important to realize this type of thing because what changed among the words of the Constitution between 1892 and Wickard v. Filburn in the mid-1900s. Well, nothing changed except the attitudes of the Supreme Court justices, the attitude of the government in general. So the statute being challenged was passed in 1890, and this is where the language of separate but equal comes from. That statute required railway companies carrying passengers in their coaches in the state to provide, quote, equal but separate accommodations for the white and colored races. Again, I'm quoting, by providing two or more passenger coaches for each passenger train or by dividing the passenger coaches by a partition so as to cure separate accommodations and providing that no person shall be permitted to occupy seats in coaches other than the ones assigned to them on account of the race they belong to and requiring the officer of the passenger train to assign each passenger to the coach or compartment assigned to the race for which he or she belonged. So not only would the passenger be subject to criminal penalties, but so would the employee of the train if they didn't assign people to the correct part of the train. The penalty was up to a fine of $25 or, but not and, which is interesting because sometimes it's and or, but in this case, it's a fine of $25 or a 20, up to a 20 day, 20 day prison sentence or jail sentence. The same penalties, whether or not you're the passenger who refused to sit in the right place or you're an employee of the railroad who didn't enforce this particular portion of the law. I find this kind of an interesting part of the statute. It said, quote, nothing in this act shall be construed as applying to nurses attending children of the other race. I can imagine that was to allow for a white family with white kids who had a black servant looking after the white kids. So the statute allowed for that. Probably didn't happen the other way. Probably didn't have too many black families with white nannies. But the way it was written, it applied both ways. 
So Plessy sat in the white car, refused to move to the black car. And for the purposes of the law, he admitted that he was in violation of the statute. He just argued the statute was unconstitutional under the 13th and 14th Amendments to the United States Constitution. Another little fact about the segregation law, trolley cars within cities were not racially divided. Only these passenger cars that made uh, a trip from one city to another city. I think it probably would have just been too impractical to try to divide the trolley cars. Trips were shorter. But in any event, it did not apply to the trolley cars in the city of New Orleans or wherever else they might have been. Well, the Supreme Court dispensed with the 13th Amendment argument pretty quickly. The statute does not conflict with the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime. It's too clear for argument, end quote. Court went on. Again, and I think this is really interesting because they showed this, this great example of the systemic, this institutionalized racism. The court said, the Supreme Court, in upholding the separate but equal doctrine, wrote, quote, a statute which implies merely a legal distinction between the white and colored races, a distinction which is founded in the color of the two races and which must always exist so long as white men are distinguished from the other race by color, has no tendency to destroy the legal equality of the two races. You can see where they're going with this. They're saying you can separate them by the races, but you have to treat them equally as a legal matter. That doesn't work, right? You cannot make the distinction because that by itself is unequal treatment, which is what the dissent makes the point of, but it's not what the court decided in 1896 in Plessy v. Ferguson. The court concluded that separating people by race isn't the same as enslaving them. Therefore, the 13th Amendment doesn't have any applicability, but the 14th was a little harder. They had to deal with that a little bit more, even though they ultimately still upheld this segregation on trains. The court said, quote, by the 14th Amendment, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are made citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. And the states are forbidden from making or enforcing any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States or shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law or deny to any person within their jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So they're basically quoting the 14th Amendment there and now they're going to say, well, does the statute segregating black and white people on the, on the Louisiana trains, does that do any of that? Does it abridge the privileges or immunities of black citizens or does it deprive them of any liberty or property without due process of law? And from our perspective, and from the ultimate perspective of Brown versus Board of Education, clearly Louisiana is abridging this equal protection of the laws, right, back in the 1890s. Well, the Supreme Court said no. The Supreme Court went on, quote, the object of the amendment, the 14th Amendment, was undoubtedly to enforce the absolute equality of the two races before the law. But, of course, right, but in the nature of things, it could not have been intended to abolish distinctions based upon color. In other words, black people have the same legal rights as white people, but we can still make legal distinctions between and among them. It kind of is a circular argument, right? But that's where they're going. That's what they did. They have the same rights, but we can distinguish the two. Well, if they have the same rights, what's the point of distinguishing? Well, they distinguish because you're treating them differently. I mean, we can see that now, but it, and it's obvious to us now, but I do think it's important to look back at the history and see where we came from, what the reality was back then, and it helps us understand where we are now. At least I hope so. Again, the Supreme Court decision really does show the systemic and this institutionalized racism that black people had to endure really bad, legally enforced racism, which they still have to address today, but hopefully not nearly as much. Hopefully it's not as institutionalized. And after Brown versus Board of Education, I think that's an example of how the legal racism has been cut back. Practical racism, that's another topic. 
the Supreme Court here in Plessy versus Fer Ferguson back in 1896, said that, quote, to enforce social as distinguished from political laws permitting or even requiring their separation in places where they are liable to be brought into contact do not necessarily imply the inferiority of either race to the other. So I'll stop right there. I think that's just an incorrect statement. Of course, it implies the inferiority of one to the other. But back then, that argument was what won the day. Dignan, the court said, these laws generally, if not universally, are recognized as within the competency of the state legislatures in the exercise of their police power. The most common instance of this is connected with the establishment of separate schools for white and, quote, colored, unquote, children, which has been held to be a valid exercise of the legislative power, even by courts of states where the political rights of the colored race have been longest and most earnestly enforced, end of quote. And the dissent will go on to say that it doesn't make any sense to look at what states have done prior to the passage of the 13th and 14th Amendment, because that changes everything. But this does, you see how Brown versus Board of Education eventually arose out of this same doctrine, because even the court in Plessy v. Ferguson which was dealing with segregated trains, specifically says, hey, we've been segregating schools, so therefore we must be able to segregate trains. More institutionalized and systemic racism is pointed out when the court continues, and they say, quote, laws forbidding the intermarriage of the two races may be said in a technical sense to interfere with the freedom of contract, and yet have been universally recognized as, as within the police power of the state. End of quote. Don't you love that? In a technical sense. <laughs> yeah, technical as in real and, and actual, but they're just going to call it a technical sense. And of course, those laws forbidding interracial mixing of marriage were eventually thrown out as unconstitutional as well uh, in Loving versus Virginia. They made a movie about that one. Another quick aside, the Supreme Court in Plessy versus Ferguson made a reference to another case, which they just called the Civil Rights Case. And that case held that the 14th Amendment only applied to the states so that D.C., as a completely federal territory, could still deny privileges and equal rights. So at the time, that was the law, right? And I'll just point out one of the quaint references to interstate commerce and intrastate commerce still being an important distinction back in 1896 when the court said, if it be a matter respecting commerce wholly within a state and not in interfering with commerce between the states, then obviously there's no violation of the Commerce Clause of the federal constitution. Again, that mattered back then. It doesn't matter anymore. The court went on that if a state legislature affected only commerce within the state, it's not an invasion of the power given to Congress by the Commerce Clause. Of course, today the court would consider railroads and even car roads and probably even bicycle paths as all affecting interstate commerce because they're connected. Even if the statute only applied to somebody going from one part of a city to another part of the city, well, the roads are still connected to other roads in other states. Therefore, the courts today would go, well, that's interstate commerce. The feds have a right to regulate it. Now, of course, that's nonsense, but we live in a nonsensical world. They would probably even find that. Let's say you had a railroad that connected two factories and nothing else. It went from factory A over here, say it went 20 miles to factory B over here. They would probably even say that affected interstate commerce. But that's what the Supreme Court did in Wickard v. Filburn, which we've talked about. So the court decides in the Plessy case, quote, we think the enforced separation of the races as applied to the internal commerce of the state, again, it's quaint that that matters back then, continuing on, this enforced separation neither abridges the privileges or immunities of the colored man, deprives him of his property without due process of law, nor denies him equal protection of the laws within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. But we are not prepared to say that the conductor employees have to assign people to a car. 
that that provision that denies the passenger compensation for being wrongfully assigned to a cabin, that part is no good. They said that part is not a valid exercise of the legislative power, end quote. So the statutory protection of the railroad employees from legal liability for assigning someone to a particular car is invalid. In essence, they're saying that if you try to make a white man wrongfully sit in the black car, you're going to be subject to civil penalties. Again, Technically, it could, it could go the other way, but of course it wouldn't, which is a good example of why the separation itself is a discrimination. Now, here's an, an argument that would probably never be made anymore, but Plessy said that since he was seven-eighths white, and apparently from the record, he looked white, that he had a property right in being considered white because it conveyed benefits like property would. The court dismissed that argument, and it said, quote, it is claimed by Plessy that in any mixed community, the reputation of belonging to the dominant race, which of course by that they mean the white race, is property in the same sense that a right of action or of inheritance is property. Conceding this to be so for the purposes of this case, which means we're not agreeing with that, but even if it is true, even if it is true, we are unable to see how this statute deprives him of him or in any way affects his right to that property. If he be a white man and consigned to a colored coach, he may have his action for damages against the company for being deprived of his so-called property. Upon the other hand, if he be a colored man and he be so assigned, he has been deprived of no property since he is not lawfully entitled to the reputation of being a white man, end quote. Again, it's important to see how this institutional and systemic racism existed in this country in the late 1890s, some 30-odd years after the end of the Civil War. Racism is blatant. Finally, the court concluded, quote, we consider the underlying fallacy of the plaintiffs, that's Plessy, his argument, to consist in the assumption that the enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority. If this be so, it is not by reason of anything found in the act, but solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction upon it, end quote. So they're blaming the victim, right? And that's exactly what they're doing. The court kept hammering on this racist attitude, a racist belief that pervade the country, when it said, quote, if the civil and political rights of both races be equal, one cannot be inferior to the other civilly or politically. If one race be inferior to the other socially, the Constitution of the United States cannot put them upon the same plane, end quote. Now, this misses the point. We aren't talking about who gets invited to a party. That's a matter of perceived social inequality. And if the people not sending out an invite, they're socially saying those people aren't worthy of an invite. And that can have nothing to do with race, right? There are people you invite to a party that you just don't like, and you socially don't like them. So that does not have to be a racial distinction when you're talking about a social inequality. It can, but it doesn't have to be. But in this case, Plessy's case is not about a law mandating who can and cannot go to a party. It's a law mandating under penalty of state violence, segregation of the races. So this isn't about a social distinction. It's about a legal one. And of course, it took half a century to get this corrected. I know it's easy for us to look back and point out how wrong they were, while at the same time giving credit to the dissent in Justice Harlan. But like I said, I don't think it's really back about looking back in judgment at how backward people were in the late 1800s. To me, it's about learning the history, about where we were and where we are now and how those two places are connected. How did we get where we are now from where we were back then? And finally, speaking of stereotypes, remember it was a Massachusetts Yankee who went to Harvard and Yale that wrote the opinion that established this separate but equal doctrine that would last for almost 60 years. And the lone descent was from a Kentucky-born Southerner whose family owned slaves and had a half-black, half-brother. It was that justice who said the decision was wrong and that the laws forcing segregation based on race were unconstitutional and immoral. Justice Harlan, in his dissent, compared this case to Dred Scott, 
and he predicted that Plessy versus Ferguson and Dred Scott, and we will talk about Dred Scott in a future episode. Dred Scott is where the Supreme Court said that descendants of Africans who were imported into this country, meaning slaves, were not included nor intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution. So they're saying that if you came here as a slave, you're not a citizen, even if you're free now. And again, that's one of the worst decisions ever in the Supreme Court history. And Justice Harlan, in his dissent, says Plessy will go down as just as bad. And he pretty much turned out to be right. Harlan continued in his dissent. He said, quote, In view of the Constitution and the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or of his color when his civil rights, as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land, are involved. End quote. So Harlan was right. So let's give props to him. Let's give props to the Kentucky Southerner. Now we still have a ways to go. The criminal justice system is still biased against minorities. I've been a criminal defense lawyer. I've represented people in federal court on drug charges. I've represented people on death row back in North Carolina who had been convicted of murder and were sentenced to death. I've walked death row and talked to people on death row. The system is biased against minorities today. Now, we don't segregate trains, we don't segregate schools, and that's progress, but we still have progress to go. I recommend everyone read a book by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow. I'm pretty sure Michelle Alexander is a huge status progressive, but she is absolutely right in The New Jim Crow because she talks about how the drug war destroys families, it takes away rights, and it creates a permanent underclass of mostly black people. Not always, but mostly black people and almost exclusively poor people. So if you get convicted of a drug crime, which is a nonviolent crime, you can't vote anymore, at least while you're in jail, and in some states forever. You can't get a job. It's almost impossible to get a job with a felony. I won't say you can't, but it's a hell of a lot harder to get a job if you have a felony. And that there is a financial incentive to keep people, again, mostly men and mostly minority men, in jail from drug crimes. That's part of privatizing jails. It's part of law enforcement lobbying to keep laws like the war on drugs intact. And I've been down to the state legislature and I've seen them do it. There is a systemic incentive for people that are involved in the state to keep people in jail. And that process is bad for America. It must end. This war on drugs Maybe in our lifetime. It will. True progress, contrary to what progressives believe, is less government force, not more. So let's keep fighting that government force for all of us. I am DK Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 7, Plessy versus Ferguson. And as always, we're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Holla at me with your comments, what you think, give me any questions, any cases you want to talk about or any government policies, let me know. You can find me on Twitter, at Blue Carp. Please follow me there. Or on Facebook.com slash Blue You'll see DK Williams. So do that if you would. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Let's live